Well, I am di delighted to say that joining me on the Godcast today is Damon Rochefort. Now, Damon is a producer, writer, and a former pop star as well. He's written for many years on things such as Birds of a Feather, but he's probably best known for his work on Coronation Street. In fact, in 2020, he was chosen to write the program's landmark 10,000th episode. So, Damon, it's great to get you on the Godcast. How are you? Hello, I'm fine. Enjoying the finding the sun's come out, which is great, depending on when you're listening to this. Well, where are you? Because I'm in Burnley in Lancashire and it's a bit grey here. Where are you? I'm in Battersea in South London. Right. So we probably get marginally better weather down here, but it is marginal. We don't get much rain. We've had a, a lot in the last week. You have too, haven't you? Mm, we've had My a bamboo lot terrace is sodden. <laughs> now, listen, uh, Damon, I normally start off gently, but... Um, you did let me know that you that something that was fascinating to me that as a as a child you were a member of the Covenanters. <laughs> Covenanters. Yeah, I thought to myself, well, what is that? So rather than me explain it, can you explain it to to the listeners and viewers? So you know, it's not until I really moved to London at eighteen that I, and, and even way after that that I realised what a strange. My mother and father were very typical of that kind of um, post-war generation that had children in the 60s. You know, they, they, were, they were children themselves in the, in, during the war. Um, and, you know, as every, a lot of people listening to this in their perhaps their 50s, uh, the only thing that mattered was um, education, bettering yourself, better, better life for your kids and life for you. So typically my very working class mother and father, they decided to, hey, I'm from South Wales, a little village called Dinis Powys. Um, first of all, they decided that the local comp was uh, too rough and too ordinary for such special children as us. So they did what a lot of middle class parents were doing at the time and working class parents were following was to put their children into Welsh language schools. Mm -hmm. um, so without them speaking a word of Welsh, we were all, all three of us launched into the um, Welsh nursery, one at a time, you know, as different ages. So I went to an entirely Welsh language school, even though my parents couldn't speak a word of it. Um, from the age of two, me and my brother and sister did. Equally in this kind of, I don't know if you call it inverted snobbery, but uh, also we live next door to Uncle Trevor and Auntie Jean. Now, Uncle Trevor was a superintendent of our local chapel. They'd always call it chapel, but there's the chapel. Um, and it was a, he was the nicest man I think I've ever met in my life. He was very funny. He looked a little bit like, um, he looked a little bit like Stan Laurel. He, and he could play, he could do tricks and he could do magic and he could play the piano. Again, that's a very, that generation of people, our parents, did and they learned all that stuff in the army in their days in service they all learned how to play the piano it was sort of that normal wisdom type of character they seem to learn an awful lot while you know mm. fighting on behalf of their countries anyway so my mother then saw another chance to to um <laughs> to do something that she and my father weren't in the slightest bit interested which was to send us to church so it was only at the bottom of the road and it was it was a chapel not a church it was very very modern i didn't realize so at the time i mean it was a beautiful design it was at the end of this very very sort of out of the way cul-de-sac which had a library a primary school the chapel and a lot of old people's flats opposite it was a it was idyllic it was a tiny little village um and 
So it was very New Testament based. It was very jolly, very sort of tambourines and bicycle clips, you know, this sort of thing. The occasional saxophone, mm. a lot of community work, a lot of, uh, you know, jungle sales at the local orphanages. So, so where does that leave you now, uh, Damon, in your 50s uh, spiritually? Are you a, a spiritual person, would you say? Do you, do you, do you think about matters of faith or, or no. do you leave them to others? absolutely not you know i, I think it, i i don't i i do think it's nonsense am i allowed to be as blunt with you as that yeah i do think it's it's foolish but um uh, but then again a lot of things i believe in are probably seen in the same way but you know i intellectualized my way out of it i suppose and i always used to get that answer you ask too many questions my son and like, how can you ask too many questions we should be asking more questions not fewer um but as, as a community as a it, it acted almost as a trampoline for the community. It was a soft landing for anyone who went within 25 yards of the place. You know, it was kind and it was, it, 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 it preached a lot of, um, we got, we taught, we, my friend Andy um, Oliver, who had a very different childhood to me, but um, I, I remember saying to her that we had an awful lot of, stories about what happened with things like colonialism and slavery and um india and africa we would always be raising money it was a very moral and non-judgmental i suppose there was no 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 there was no obviously no confession there was no uh, nothing about sin particularly it was much more about living your life through Lord Jesus Christ, and he should be your beacon and your guide and the rest of it. And, and, and you know, which seems a pretty harmless kind of faith when there are so many appallingly harmful ones. So in a way, it was it was it was the bounciest and, and sweetest of I was lucky enough to get landed with. Um, I want to talk more about you and I want to just move on to music. Damon, mm -hmm. what, what, what music were you listening to as a kid? What was pressing your buttons? So looking back again, you, you're, you're bringing it out of me, Father. I think this was, another, um, this was another thing that I had to rebel against is everybody liked heavy metal music, which I just hated. I mean, everybody, everybody. Uh, or it was Tangerine Dream or Pink Floyd or, you know, uh, it was, I hated it. Uh, looking back, uh, I was obsessed with black music, obsessed with soul music. I was obsessed with Donna Summer, Earth and Fire, Stevie Wonder, Rita Franklin, Michael Jackson, anything that was black and anything that was soulful, anything that had a song. You know, it struck me very early on that soul music, disco music too particularly, was the only form of popular music that used a, a big orchestra all the time, all the time. Horns, timbales, drums, trombones, trumpets. And I thought, that's because that's why it sounds good. You know, for blokes, and no, no, not for me. You know, I think white people should stick to what they're best to, playing golf and selling cars. So I was obsessed, I, I was obsessed with um, black music. But looking back again, I wonder whether that was much more about me being gay and not knowing I was gay, because it was the other, you know, a black woman was as much unlike me, especially an American black woman. And I always found American soul music far more... Uh, powerful and evocative than British soul music. Well, there wasn't much, admittedly. But uh, for me, looking back, I've never had therapy, but if I did, I would tell the therapist, I can see this was the gay me. I mean, it's no surprise that so many gay men do like that kind of music because all the straight boys who were probably either bullying them or calling them queer or or they were felt feeling left out, even if they weren't 
known as being gay would of course reject anything that those boys liked. So you don't get many gay football fans, you don't get many gay rock music fans, you don't get, you don't get a lot of gay people. I mean, you do now, obviously, but then you didn't, you know? Back then when it was still 21 compared to 16, I mean, talk about inequality, it seems almost unbelievable now. And Damon, you talked about uh, yourself, this uh, self-confident young, young guy. At what point did that enable you to come out and, and talk about your sexuality and when you did was that was that uh, uh liberating for you and and how confident were you in doing that well i was really naive I, people might not believe i knew i was attracted to men if i saw a picture of a sexy man or a willy uh, rather than a woman but then again i would i only ever had sexual experiences with girls i think um, you know this is going back into the early 80s um but then I kind of also thought, well, maybe all guys feel like this. All men seem to be obsessed with each other's penises anyway. They're constantly talking about it, constantly trying to look at each other's. So who knows? And um, then I met my one of my best friends, Helen, at university, my daughter's mum, and, and she got pregnant within about three months. So that was another wrinkle. My daughter now is bizarrely living back in the Brecon Beacon, she runs, um, uh, she owns a fabulous organic pig farm with her, with her boyfriend. She's in her mid thirties now. Um, so that was a little wrinkle of complication. Um, but because I was in, because I was now interviewing a lot of DJs and I was a DJ and I was getting invited, they gave me the gossip column within about six months on this magazine. God knows why, but I was funny and I was good. I was outrageous because I didn't know any of these people. So I was insulting these poor DJs and, and artists who'd been working for months, but that's what the editor wanted. I was called The Mouth. And I did that for a good, must have done that for a year or two. Um, and I think a lot of people around me, my friends, I had a lot of older friends, a lot of mentors, they all kind of guessed. Um, I think even Helen guessed, or I, had to, I remember breaking down and confessing in tears one night that, that I think I might be gay or blah, blah, blah. Um, and when I told my, my mother was, I, I also knew back then that I would probably lose about 15 to 20% of my friends. And I did, you know, I, I, I thought that was going to be, it's like they must have some kind of uh, logarithm at um, these tills in supermarkets where they know people are going to steal a a certain amount of food if you're going to put it to yourself i thought i'm gonna i thought this some of them are not going to feel comfortable boys particularly uh, men perhaps even worse people from my hometown i mean we didn't tell my grandmother food well my grandmother never really guessed because i had a dutch boyfriend at one point hans and she somehow got into her head she did have to mention it later but even before she did she sort of got into her head that he was that he was staying with us kind of because of the war, because there were so many, she had always had Italians and, uh, and she always had, she was very clever, my grandma. She was a, a, a secretary to one of the Pankhurst women, I think Emmeline Pankhurst, when she was a very young girl at 15 or 16 up in Yorkshire. And we checked this up as well. And it turns out, indeed, all the stories she told me about her being married to this little Italian man, she always had to take, a, had to take the breakfast in bed. Anyway, my, yeah, my nana also thought that Hans was a, some kind of refugee that stayed with us after a particularly difficult bombing raid somewhere. But, um, but my mother, when I told her I was gay, her words, her very words were, you're not gay, you're showing off. 
That was that was my mother all over. You're not gay, you're showing off. I said, Mum, oh thank God, say you were like this with you know, you were like this with hula hoops or whatever. She just thought it was another fan. Um, and again, like a lot of people that generation, she'd a bit like I don't know if you've seen talks on trilogy with Anne Bancroft when she says to Harvey Weinstein, I I I accept you gay, but you have to stuff it down my throat like aspirin every hour on the hour. She was a bit like that. She didn't like me talking about in public very much or in front of the family not in front of crowd Sharon's mother would say not in front of crowd so she she was in that generation that um they found it quite shameful really uh, now so you go on to have this big record I want to give you devotion now what were you um were you kind of into that kind of dance scene then by this stage were you were you really, not really I was in soul music but I'd met this woman called girl then sharon d clark uh, and, and what was the question again well i can't remember damien but in the 80s <laughs> but, but, but in the 80s i remember you only had to sell one record to make a, a fair bit of dosh so that that yes. small investment i guess paid paid you back well um with the with well the, the, well we did a lot of those kind of records but each record did sufficiently well i say well you know in the dance charts and then we got to with a couple of them, um, we sort of got in the low, sort of number 72. Then I had a record called Don't Believe the Hype by Mr. E, and that got to number 41, which was so incredibly frustrating because when you got into the 40, even number 40, Radio One would start playing, Capital Players would take it up, all the local regionals would take it up, WH Smith, John Menzies, Woolworths, they would all stock it. They wouldn't stock anything outside the top 40. So to be at 41 mean you kind of spent your load on some, you know, uselessly because you, and, and, and then what would happen? It'd be number 45 next week and then 60. If they'd all happened in the same week, you'd be in the top 40 and then off you go. Mm. So when we released Devotion in 1990, I'd sold it to a very small record company um, I, on the basis, on a very good basis. I'd already made it, which is always much better than going cap in hand. Same with TV show if you can do it if you can make a promo yourself of what you're trying to do it's you're in a far stronger position when it comes to doing a deal rather than saying oh well, don't I do it that way they can start interfering too if you don't deliver a finished product so um I made a really good deal and I'd get half of the all the advances from any foreign territories I'd never sold a record of mine in a foreign territory so nobody cared it was only a tiny label very good label called Rumor Records but very small they just started really but they they kept faith with me and uh, and Sharon and, and, and released lots of uh, like four or five records previous to that. So what happened was it, it got a real good buzz, this record called Devotion. I want to give you, and I wanted to make a record that had a bit of soul in it, a bit of rap. It wasn't fast like a house record, it's sort of mid-tempo, which it is. And Sharon and I had been touring because she'd had an, oh, well, I say we, it really didn't have much to do with me. But while I was looking after Again, I say managing. I wasn't really managing either. We just used to... I used to take her out on gigs because there was a big record. Do you remember FPI Project, going back to my roots? It was a big piano track. Mm. And um, they would... Rumour Records had licensed it for England. The worst way round, right, for you to license a, a track for your territory or to have a track that you can license to every single territory in the world. That's what they wanted and that's what I wanted. But with this record, they'd licensed it from Belgium to Britain, but it didn't have a vocal on. It was Italian, I tell a lie. Um, Tanshan put the vocal on, we flew to Milan a day, came back, didn't even stay over. She did it like that because she's 
one of the best singers this country's ever produced. And it was a hit, it was top 10 hit. They desperately wanted to do, I remember, Top of the Pops, because that was the best thing you could ever do to promote a record. But she was in the Bolton Octagon doing, I think it was called Choo 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 Boogie at the time, the show she was doing. She was an actress, really. Um, and they had to buy every single ticket the record company that night, every single ticket in the Bolton Octagon, which is a big theatre, so that they would allow Sharon to, they'd have to close the show for the night. So, um, so we'd had, it wasn't like I'd never had a hit before with Devotion. We'd had a lot of these on near hits and guest starring and, mm. but it, it did enable me to then put together a show for Sharon, which included a couple of songs I'd written for her, going back to my roots, do a couple of acapellas. So I was her tour manager effectively. But while we were going around Europe, this would have been in 1989, early 1990, I heard a lot of these snaps, I've got the power. It was a time of everybody dance now. Um, and I said, this is great, but instead of taking a sample, which you're eventually going to have to pay somebody for when they find out and sue you, I'll just get Sharon to do that bit, because that's what she does. She came down and did it in about five minutes. I was recording it at Simmer's, um, Hans Zimmer now is, of course, king of the world. At the time, he had a studio down in Lydiard that I used all the time. Hans was a great friend. He, in fact, plays on Devotion. Um, and went back, made this record. It went out. Um, it got great reviews, great, great, great response from the clubs. Radio wouldn't touch it, I think because it mentioned Maggie Thatcher, which seems a bit ridiculous. Um, she'd been out, um, out of power by then, I would have thought. Um, but then it kept, it was at number 65 one week, 62, 68. And I said, we're going to just lose this because, so they said, right, we'll delete it. This was in about November, and we'll re-release it in January because everybody was, it's all mistletoe and wine, and yeah, it's yeah. all your mum at Christmas. So, um, so we try and avoid those times. So, and they said to me, look, this looks really good. It's it's building and building and building, the pre, what you call pre-sales. And of course, now you get everything on a touch of a button. Then you'd have to order a record and, and wait till it got released officially, not least because it would count towards one week of chart rather than spread over six. So hopefully you get over that finishing line of number 40 so um we were me and sharon we had, I had a flat behind the hackney empire then in milton way me and sharon listened to the radio number 40 number 39 number 38 number 37 and we thought oh, we're not gonna it's not gonna happen we will we'll be number 42 again and then that's it and then number 14 highest new entry no man i want to give you devotion what <laughs> and then immediately and i mean immediately phone goes can you do Top of the Pops? Phone goes. Can you do Out and Debt? Phone goes. Can you do Chart Show? Phone goes. Can you do a Weekend in Belgium? Phone goes. And my life and Sharon's life changed completely from that second because you had to wait to listen to the Chart Show. Now, I don't know if there is, is there even a chart now, but you had to wait. Everybody did in the business too. Um, so from that moment, both of our lives changed completely. And we were on the road, probably on and off for about five years. And it, you know, we we supported Kylie, which is a true highlight. My my current husband is a big fan of Kylie, and he almost peed himself when I said that we'd supported her. <laughs> and of course, he knew, he grew up. You know, he remembers seeing us on top of the pops doing this song. So that always seemed it seems like another life, really, father, because yeah. it's thirty years ago. I'm almost talking about feels like I'm talking about someone else. I wanted to, I want to talk about Corey. And, and so you, you go from music to writing. Um, was, that, was that an easy transition? Uh, was, it, was it planned? Or, it, or was there an element of luck attached to it? 
Well, I was going through kind of a strange time in my life. I remember that I I, I was producing much more. I, I wasn't really uh, being, Sharon was so busy and she was creating her own wonder, even though we're still as close as ever. Um, she's about to open in Broadway, by the way, on Carolina or Change, which is phenomenal. Um, I, I I was producing, I, I produced Kim Wilde album, a, a Latoya Jackson album, I, um, Bad Boys Inc. was a and then, and then I thought all the fun of me having a hit had become very routine. We had a studio, in fact, the studio mm. was here, if you can sit behind me, which was a garage. It's now a utility room, but that was a full recording studio where I made lots and lots of records with my, my partner, Aaron Friedman. And we were lucky enough to work with lots of Dina Carroll and Michelle Gill. But it started to feel like a job, you know, and, 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 and I loved working with all those people. But um, I split up with a partner at the time. Um, and it was my ex, Helen, my daughter's mother, who said, oh, there's this thing called the Arvind Foundation. Anyone that wants to be a writer, this isn't a bad way in, um, where they've got three residential properties all over the country. There'll be, there's one not far from Manchester. Um, and you go for a week, it's open to absolutely everyone. I think it costs about 200 quid for your food and you've got rotors with food cooks and who washes up and the rest of it. Um, and each week or five days whatever it was is taken by a real expert in that field if you're doing thriller writing it might be pd james back then or ruth rendell or someone uh, for me i always wanted to write sitcom that was the other comic books black music and sitcoms were the three things that define my my teenage years and i wanted to do all of those things really um so i went along to this course and uh, for sitcom and it it was taken by two very respected writers called Marks and Gran, who'd written and created the New Statesman, Birds of a Feather, Goodnight Sweetheart, Shine and Harvey Moon. Um, I mean, they many, 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 many sitcoms, uh, they're responsible. Again, they became the most wonderful mentors to me. Um, and I went along and after day, I think day three, they sort of asked me to, you know, I'm blabbing on about Lucille Ball and the Honeymooners and Sergeant Bilko, all the things that a lot of people would remember really even at the time but I loved watching all that old stuff you know when I like uh, when I fell in love with black music I started going back to Motown and then back to Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra you know it was a voyage of discovery not just what is happening now which is so overrated if you just look at what's fashionable having a light having a love for something means you can go all the way back into its history and find some some absolutely wonderful stuff that you might never have found so they thought i was a slight oddity sort of ex-pop star banging on about lucille ball um and they took me out in the garden one coffee time and just said how many people do what you do you know make these dance records i said i don't know you know probably a good couple of hundred in in this country alone they said was well, about eight people can write that can write funny kid and we think you might be number nine why don't you write an episode of birds of a feather uh, we'll see if you can do it if you can do it. not obviously as a trial you call it a trial script um just to see if i could talk the talk rather than just walk the walk so i wrote this episode on my grandmother my nana roch's typewriter which she'd given to me which i wrote my initial diana ross um article on which i mentioned earlier which i hope you haven't uh, edited out otherwise that won't make any sense but um I wrote the script it was if I say so myself very funny it was very cheeky it was quite rude but they love all that who doesn't in comedy and I said to them and they said this is really good it's funny well done um now what do you want to write you know we'll option you come up with an idea what do you want to write and I came up with an idea called Boys R Us about a boy band because I'd worked with 
Bad Boys Inc. I've been a pop star myself. It, again, it was very funny. It was being developed at the BBC, you know, later. But at the time, the idea was then they'd whisk me up and, and I'd write my own sitcom. But in the meantime, someone, they were, they were just about prepping, doing pre-production for a, a Birds of a Feather series. This had been about 1996. And suddenly out of the blue, I got a phone call from them. I didn't even have, even have an agent at the time. I'd never written a thing saying, one of the writers has pulled out the current series. Can we use your episode as episode two, rehearsal start tomorrow down in, they literally, I'm probably exaggerating for effect, but it was literally... One day, one day I'd written this, I'd met them. Two weeks later, I'd written a Birds and Feather script. Three weeks later, they said, can we film it? This does not happen. This does not happen. This is pure dumb luck. Obviously, I needed to be able to write a script, but this is dumb luck. This doesn't happen. Um, and uh, Mo and Lowe even tell me that they relate this story often when they're asked to do talks on uh, how important dumb luck can be. So, yes, for me, it was very easy, but... Um, it's not an easy business, and it's um, very competitive. Certainly now, much, much, much more now, um, because so many people want to become writers. When I was a kid, we didn't even know that was a job. We really didn't know that was a job. I mean, it was so far from my understanding of anything. You know, my dad worked in a furniture shop. My mother was on the switchboard of a hotel. Uncle Trevor was next door. There's some people who, who are really chugging away really hard for a, a lucky break. Um, and, and I think there is an element of luck attached. But what is what would your, it sounds like swap shop, but <laughs> what would your top tip be to writers out there who, uh, who are trying to make some progress? I would say um, there's no point in writing what we already see on the television. One, it's already on. So don't come up with something that's exactly the same as something in the line of duty don't need it. There's plenty of other people doing it far better than you ever will. Bear in mind that if you want to have your own show on, someone's going to be entrusting you with several million pounds, so it's not going to happen unless you've got some experience of writing. So no one's going to hand a kid two million quid and say, go nuts. The best thing you can possibly do is to try and start writing with some kind of deadline involved. So even if it's... Um, say it's a school place, say it's a university place, say it's a church place, say it's a, anything at all. If you've got some kind of deadline, you're going to have to do it. And it, it might be terrible, it might be, it's, it, but you're only going to get better once you do it more than once. You know, there's no point thinking, I know, I'll write the new lock, stock, two smoking barrels. Well, you need to know an awful, I'm sure there's an awful lot of stuff you have to learn before you can become a vicar, really. And there's a lot of stuff you have to learn before you become an electrician. It's no different from anything else. You have to learn how it works. And no one's going to trust you with an enormous amount of money unless you have done it before. So the best thing you can do is write and write and write for other people so that you know that it's not just me doing it and it doesn't really matter and there's no deadline. You know, if you're doing it for local Andram, um, and there's plenty of those all over the country, there's plenty of churches, plenty of youth clubs, all of whom you might be surprised to learn are looking for scripts all the time. The only place that doesn't seem to be looking for scripts, unfortunately, is television. But having said that, the best thing you could probably do is to pursue your, um, pursue your writing in this way until you feel confident enough to send it to... to when I was starting off, there were places like Family Affairs and Mile High. They were kind of very low budget uh, Channel 5. Did I say Family Affairs? There were a few of them. Doctors works on a low budget, but there's a very good high quality 
product and they're always willing to try new writers. You know, some of the, um, I believe Hollyoaks is very good at looking for new writers. We at Corey, they, they put people through courses. Doesn't mean you're going to get a job, but it does mean you will learn how to do this. So I would say you just have to write. You just have to keep writing. And it's much better if you've got an obligation like it's got to be done by June the 17th, because you must know yourself, and I know from my own experiences, you get very dispirited halfway through and you might just put that script away. If it's got to be done, you're going to finish it. And it's all about getting it done. Seat in the pants to the seat of the chair and just start typing. Even if it's terrible, you'll make it better on the next draft. You know, my other thing is to get, write any old nonsense, even if you think it's terrible while you're doing it, to get past a difficult scene, because you're always going to come back and write it better. And you, you will always have that idea when you're on the treadmill or in the bath or when you're not thinking about it. So I would say, like anything else, if you're going to be a great singer, sing every day. If you're going to be a writer, you need to be writing all the yeah. time. Yeah. Great advice, uh, Damon. Thanks. We can't finish. I'm a very, very wise man, really. <laughs> We can't, well, we, can't, we can't finish this interview without uh, just a few reflections on Corrie. Just a couple of minutes, Damon. Tell us sure. the joy of, of writing for such a popular uh, soap as, as Corrie with its history and richness. Of well, for a gay man, it's like working the, it's like winning the jackpot, isn't it? I mean, it's those women. It's, it's why I was very lucky to write Blanche's funeral. I was very honoured to write Deirdre's funeral. Um, I, you know, I've written several marriages. I've written the 10,000th episode, which was one of the honours of my life. Um, the best thing about it is it's a, obviously it's an institution. What I have Audrey say to Gail will be, can sometimes be repeated on Twitter or whatever, up and down the nation or in Watercooters next day. That That's always lovely. You get an instant response, which you don't get when you write anything else because you're watching it while everyone else is, which is really kind of nice. Um, and these days with social media, you can see what people think of it. Not always nice. <laughs> um, above all, really, is the fact that it's an incredible team of people. I mean, I would never have dreamt I would have been a part um, of a group of people who are all friends. I've been there 16 or 17 years. And I've never done anything that long, you know? No, I haven't done anything. In fact, that's as long as I spent in Wales. I left when I was early 18, so I've nearly been on Corrie as long as I spent as my entire childhood until leaving home. And I have, and, and as writers and actors and crew and production staff and office staff, especially, of course, in all that time, everybody goes through death and divorce and crises and, and happy times. So, it, you know, it's cliches, it sounds... But it's like a family. Well, how can it not be when you see each other? You have to work hand in glove yeah. all the time with each other. We have story conference every month. Where we haven't been able to do that for a year for the same reason nobody else has been able to meet in person. But um, we all meet up in Media City in Salford and um, we go to the pub and we get drunk and we laugh and we catch up and then we come home and we're all yeah. Zooming each other. Well, you have to because the show wouldn't make any sense if we didn't communicate with each other, as you can imagine. Six yeah. a week. Something like 380 or something a year. It's incredible output. It's more than making a movie a week. Yeah. You know, when you bring... it's ridiculous. A, are you a fan? Are you a fan, Father? Do you watch it? Don't well, lie to me, I will know. Well, I'm gonna be honest with you, right? Um I've interviewed I interviewed a couple of Cory guys, I had uh, Kevin Kennedy on and uh, oh, I love and, and Sean Wilson came on. Oh. Um, and we and we talked about Cory. I, I used to be a huge, huge fan. Um, my life's quite busy at the moment, so I don't have time for for Corrie. I have to say I preferred it when it was more character-based than 
you know, I know there's I know there's some wonderful storylines going on at the moment. Yeah. I'm aware of that, and they're really important ones. But I, I like character. I like the characters, and I miss the real characters. What I would describe, you know, the yeah, the, the Curly Watts and the Hilda Ogden. We've got a few. We've got our lovely Maureen Lipman playing Evelyn. That's wonderful. You get a lot of value out of Gail and Audrey, Sally. Yeah. Uh, Carla's great, Ali King, great friend of mine. Damon, it's been wonderful talking to you. It's been wonderful learning about your career. Uh, oh, please. It really has. I've really enjoyed talking. I'm fascinated. It's, uh, I can talk to you all afternoon about music, uh, particularly, but, and offering some uh, some good tips there for writers. Thanks mm. for coming on the podcast. If, if anybody wants to see more interviews like this one with Damon, there's, well, there's quite a lot online. Just Google the Godcast. There's some uh, fantastic interviews there. But it might not David, be this good. Be right. uh, this is going to be right at the top. Trust me. <laughs> and um, and uh, this will be out. Uh, you'll, you can, if you can hear this as a podcast or as a video, it'll be out very soon. So thanks for watching. Will you be able to understand my Welsh accent? Sorry? Will you be able to... <laughs> 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 right, thanks so much. Let me talk to you. God bless you. Bye.